following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Uh, church, let me say it is a great honor to be before you this morning. And this morning we'll be in Psalm 33. And as you turn in your Bibles, third, third Psalm, I'd like to start by asking all of us a question. What drives you? And this question really comes from my job. From, from time to time, I have the opportunity to take part in the interview process of someone who'd like to join our company. And it seems like this question comes up almost every single interview. What drives you? Now, if you've ever been an interviewee before, you know that typically you want to make the best impression you can on your hopeful future employer. So we'll get a whole host of answers ranging from uh, my job, my family, uh, achieving success as a team. Uh, the list goes on. You know, it's not really dissimilar from the question, tell me one weakness about yourself. And the answer, mm, well, I work too hard. And all of these sound like good answers, right? But, but really what this question is getting at, and the way that I would like us to think about this question this morning is, what drives you is what you've placed your hope in. Are you driven by your career? Have you placed your hope in climbing the corporate ladder or establishing your business? Well, what happens to you when you're passed over for that promotion you've worked so hard to get, or your business stumbles? And in case if you haven't opened the news recently, things seem particularly bleak these days, don't they? Wars and rumors of wars, corruption, government overreach, the rise of artificial intelligence, scandals. Um, you know, the list goes on, which, which brings us back to, to our question, what, what drives you? Or better yet, what have you placed your hope in? Hope in a better future for your children? Hope in your own strength to muscle through another day. Hope in all the likes you've received on your Instagram over the course of the night. And if you take the time to look around you, you'll recognize that this message of hope is all around us. Uh, we, we cannot escape it. We as Western society look around at all that's happening in the news and recognize that something isn't quite right. This, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. Um, you know, I was only in the eighth grade when Barack Obama made his first presidential run in 2008. And his political campaign was a little on the nose, but in case if you don't remember it, or if you weren't alive during it, which is crazy, uh, there should be a picture up on the screen. Quite, quite literally, his campaign was, with me as your president, we have hope and a future as a nation. Yet, don't think that this political messaging is exclusive to one side of the aisle. Make America great. Hope. Hope in a better future by returning to the glories of our past. Both of these slogans, regardless if you believe in the message these politicians are putting before you, says, put your hope in me. I can solve the problems that plague our country. Now, there may be some of you this morning who don't concern yourself with politics, but, but don't think that you're not bombarded with the same message every day. Buy this pair of shoes and you'll run faster, jump higher, throw farther. Or buy this pair of jeans 
and you'll be just as beautiful as her. Or watch my videos and you'll become the next big influencer. Or follow my 12 rules to get your life under control. Hope in our product to make you better or turn you into the person that you wish that you were. Or there may be some of you this morning thinking, Andrew, I, I don't have hope. You feel like your marriage is on the edge. Just receive that diagnosis for, for you or for a loved one. You just lost your job and you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet. You, you keep returning to that same sin over and over and over again. To, to all of us, let me say, there exists a hope that will never disappoint. Which, which brings us to our big idea this morning. If, if you're new with us, you should have received a handout looks like this when you came through the doors. It has our big idea on it as well as our points for today's sermon. And our big idea today is, Christian, praise the Lord for our hope in him is sure. Repeat that for us. Praise the Lord for our hope in him is sure. With that, if you're able, please stand with me as we read the 33rd Psalm. And as you stand, remember that our standing is done both in respect to and acknowledgement of what we are about to read are the very inspired words of God. Let us read. Shout for joy in the Lord, be righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has seen as his parents. He sees all the children of God. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all observes all needs. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise your great name this morning and confess that you indeed are seated on your throne in the heavens. That you be glorified through the preaching of your word. Amen. Maybe seated. In. Church, as we dive into the psalm this morning, what I'd first like to bring all of our attention to is the structure of the psalm itself. Now, 
typically with a psalm, we'd first cover the occasion that caused a psalm to be written, as well as the author of the psalm. But 33 is a little peculiar in that we hardly know anything beyond the psalm itself. We, we do not know the occasion, nor do we know the author, but we still have the psalm. And looking at the structure of the psalm, we immediately see that it is a hymn of praise. And the psalmist has been gracious to us this morning by giving us a clear logical flow to his psalm. Praise God. In, in verses 1 through 3, he commands us to praise the Lord. In verses 4 through 19, he explains the reasons as to why we ought to praise the Lord. And finally, in verses 20 through 22, he shifts his tone and calls us to respond communally to the Lord by declaring our hope in him. So, so see his argument. Verses 1 through 3, the command to praise. Verses 4 through 19, the reasons why the command to praise exists. And then finally, in verses 20 through 22, the communal declaration of our hope in the Lord. The psalmist calls us to respond to the Lord together, that our hope in him is sure. With that, we find ourselves at our first point, the command to praise. Read with me verses 1 through 3. Shout for joy in the Lord, O ye righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. What, what I want us to see in these three short verses is all the various avenues of praise our psalmist highlights. Shout for joy. Praise befits. Give thanks. Make melody. Sing to him. Play skillfully. Do, do not think the psalmist is merely telling us to sing to the Lord. Yes, he is doing that. But his call for us to praise the Lord is so much more comprehensive than merely singing songs to him. No, the psalmist wants our hearts to be captured by, by the living, sovereign Lord. And being so captured, we cannot help but respond in praise to him. Do, do you see how he defines this activity of praise? Not only does he call us to praise the Lord, no, he goes even a step further by saying that this activity, this heart attitude of praise to the Lord, is fitting for the righteous. See, see this in verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Think about it like this. Earlier this month, we celebrated the 4th of July. And yes, July 4th celebrates the adoption of the Declaration of Independence during the Second Continental Congress. But if you've been in America for any length of time, you, you know the 4th of July is much more than this. It's a celebration of the freedoms and liberties we have as a country and a celebration of the ideals our country represents, even if we always don't live up to those ideals. But all in all, July 4th is a distinctly American holiday. Driving into Roseburg, you could see American flags hanging on all the light posts downtown. But if we happened to find ourselves in Kathmandu, Nepal on the 4th of July, it would be silly to expect them to be flying American flags, let alone celebrating our independence. No, celebrating the 4th of July is fitting for Americans by nature of us being citizens of America. How much more true is this of us who are citizens of heaven? regardless of how the world views it or you, praise to and of our Lord is now that which fits you. Which leads us to our second point this morning, the, the four reasons to praise the Lord. And as we begin our second point, I'd like to direct your attention to the first word of verse 
4, and that is the word for. That's verse 4, word 4, F-O-R, what we're looking at. And, and what I want us to see is, is what the psalmist is doing. In, in verses 1 through 3, we have the command to praise the Lord. And then with his transition here, with the use of the word for, what he's essentially telling us is, here's the command. Now, come on into my study, pull up a chair, and let me tell you the reasons why the command exists. Not unlike a sermon today, he begins with a summary of his reasons in verses 4 and 5, and then expands upon them in verses 6 through 19. What he tells us is, here's my four points, and then he dives in. So, let us read his four points in verses 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is upright. Reason number one. And his work is done in faithfulness. Reason two. He loves righteousness and justice. Reason three. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Reason four. With that, let us dive into his first reason. The Lord's word. See this in verses six through nine. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. At the outset of his reasons, our psalmist immediately takes us back to creation. It is by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made, and by his word he caused everything that exists to come into existence. Uh, Theologians of old have used the phrase ex nihilo to describe God's act of creation, which is a fancy way of saying out of nothing. That, That is, everything you see around you this morning, this entire physical world at one point did not exist. Matter, or this material world, is not eternal. And prior to the cosmos existence, there was nothing except for the Lord himself. It it was he who spoke into the void, this, this nothingness, and by his word brought order and life and beauty. Church, marvel at these words from Genesis 1 this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light And there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and it was so. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and it was so. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, and it was so. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, and it was so. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And it was so. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And church, think back to how the Lord revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. When when Moses asked the Lord, um, when the people of Israel ask me, what, what is the name of the God that sent you to us? What, what am I supposed to say to them? Do you remember what the Lord told Moses? Hear this. 
say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. In other words, tell the people of Israel, the one who absolutely is, the one who has no beginning and no end, the one who created all things to exist by his word, has sent me. John Piper says it rightly. Let this sink in. God, the God who holds you in being this moment, never had a beginning. Ponder it. Do you remember the first time you thought about this as a child or as a young teenager? Let that speechless wonder rise. God never had a beginning. I am has sent me to you. And one who never had a beginning, but always was and is and will be, defines all things. Whether we want him to be there or not, he is there. We do not negotiate what we want for reality. God defines reality. When we come into existence, we stand before a God who made us and owns us. We have absolutely no choice in this matter. We do not choose to be, and when we are, we do not choose that God be. No ranting and raving, no sophisticated doubt or skepticism has any effect on the existence of God. He simply and absolutely is. Tell them, I am has sent you. Church, do you not see a great reason to praise our Lord this morning? (laughs) But our psalmist does not stop with God's act of creation. No, he progresses further, which see this in his second reason, the Lord's work in verses 10 through 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom he has chosen. So, so thus far, we've seen the Lord as sovereign creator over all things. It's he who exists eternally, and without his act of creation, everything that exists would not exist. Yet, church, see that with his second reason, our psalm is taking us one step further. God did not merely create all things and then take a step back. No, he's presently involved with his creation it's, it's not as if he merely wound up a watch and has now let it go to spin freely without any intervention on his part. He, he's presently involved in history, directing all events according to his purposes. Look, look with me at these three verses and notice the contrast our psalmist uses by repeating the words counsel and plans. We, we first see the counsel of the nations and then the counsel of the Lord, as well as the plans of the people and then plans of his heart. What our psalmist is doing is contrasting these two counsels, these two plans. On, on one hand, we have the counsel of the nations and the plans of man. And on the other, we have the counsel of the Lord and his plans. Yes, the psalmist tells us that God's plans and purposes will prevail, but how can you be sure? In, in the midst of all that's presently wrong with our world, how, how can we be sure that God's plans and purposes will be what's accomplished in the end. Well, look at verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. And that word translated as stand is the same Hebrew word used for stood firm in verse 9, referencing God's creative act of speaking all things into existence. So, So what I want us to see is what the psalmist is doing. By, by pointing us back, by using the same word stands to speaking to God all things into existence, he's providing assurance for us that the same God who spoke all things into being is certainly powerful enough to work all things according to his purposes. 
The plans of the nations will not thwart God. The schemes of the devil will not hinder his purposes. Richard Sibbs says it beautifully. The, the wheels in a watch or clock move contrary one to another, some one way, some another, yet all serve the intent of the workman to, to show the time or to make the clock strike. So in the world, the providence of God may seem to run cross to his promises. One man takes this way, another runs this way. Good men go one way, wicked men another, yet all, in conclusion, accomplish the will and purposes of God the great creator of all things. Which leads us to verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So, so knowing that the counsel of the nations that oppose God will be brought to nothing and the counsel or plans of God will stand firm, what about the people God has chosen? A.P. Ross's commentary on this psalm hopefully explains this. Verse 12 appropriately pronounces a blessing on those who are in covenant with the Lord, who live according to his plans and purposes. They are called a people and a nation. The words are used here in contrast to their usage in verse 10. In other words, there is a nation, a people, who are not trying to destroy the plan of God, for they are at the heart of it. The endless variations of the plans of the nations to oppose the divine plan by opposing Israel will come to nothing. Craigie says, the nation whose God is the Lord is blessed precisely because its national existence is based upon the divine plan, not merely upon human aspirations. So, why is the nation of Israel blessed according to our psalmist? Precisely because the plans of the Lord will endure forever. Hear this from Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Or, in the same vein as our psalmist this morning, the counsel of the nations withers, the plans of man fade, but the purposes of our God will stand forever. So, thus far, we've seen the Lord as the sovereign creator over all things, who is actively involved in his creation, orchestrating all things to accomplish his will. Yet, our psalmist continues. In verses 13 through 15, we see his third reason to praise the Lord, and that is the Lord's righteous judgments. Read with me 13 through 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. And I want us to look closely at these verses and, and see in verses 13 and 14. The Lord looks down from heaven and from where he sits enthroned, he looks out. As well as he sees all the children of man and on all the inhabitants of the earth. So we must ask, what is the idea our psalmist is trying to emphasize by the use of this repetition? Well, before we answer that, let me ask you all. In these short couple of verses, from where is God looking and where is man? Look with me to verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven, in verse 14, on all the inhabitants of the earth. We, we have this imagery of the Lord, high and exalted above the earth, seated in the heavens, in fact. And from his sovereign throne, he's able to look down and see all of mankind. Nothing is hidden from his sight. 
Again, pay attention to the repetition in these verses. In these three short verses, the word all is repeated four times. All the children of man, all the inhabitants of the earth, who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Unlike an earthly king or ruler whose view is hindered by nature of his humanity, nothing is hindered from the sovereign Lord. He can see all things. Again, A.P. Ross offers help in understanding these verses. The sovereign Lord is the righteous judge. He thoroughly evaluates all human actions. Because he created mankind, his evaluation can penetrate even to motivations behind actions. He understands completely what we are, what we do, and why we do it. And the standard by which he evaluates us is his righteousness. All will be judged by the sovereign Lord. And the measure by which they will be judged is the righteousness of God himself. With with this in view, we find ourselves at the final reason our psalmist provides for us this morning, and that is the Lord's faithful love. See this in verses 16 through 19. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Not too long ago, in the scope of history, it looked as if one man was set out to conquer the entirety of Europe. With, with Western Europe firmly in his hands, he set his sights on Britain, yet the Russians did not comply with his continental blockade. So, gathering together a massive army, he set out to force the Russians' compliance. The year is 1812, and the man who looked like he was set out to conquer the Western world was Napoleon Bonaparte. To to put this in perspective, Napoleon's army numbered almost 650,000 men, whereas George Washington's Continental Army during the American Revolution rarely surpassed 15,000. With a fighting force of such size, what, what chance did the Russians have? Well, over the course of six months, Napoleon's army would continuously dwindle as the Russians simply pulled their forces back deeper and deeper into Russia, setting fire to even their own cities to ensure Napoleon and his men would be unable to resupply. On September 14th, Napoleon marched what seemed to be victoriously into Moscow, only to find that the city was already set ablaze and the Russian leader was nowhere to be found. Realizing that he and his men would be unable to survive a Russian winter, he ordered his men to return, stragglers being picked off by the Russians as they made this retreat. Altogether, over the course of this campaign, it's estimated that 380,000 men lost their lives, just from Napoleon's army. And it would be shortly thereafter that this once seemingly invincible emperor of Europe would be exiled to the tiny island of Elba. Charles Spurgeon says it rightly, mortal power is a fiction, and those who trust in it are dupes. Serried ranks of armed men have failed to maintain an empire or even to save their monarch's life when a decree from the court of heaven has gone forth for the empire's overthrow. All along the line of history, this verse has been verified. The strongest battalions melt like snowflakes when God is against them. 
Do you see what the psalmist is doing here? What is a king tempted to place his hope in? How, how about a warrior? What about a nation? How about you? What, what our psalmist is getting at with these examples is so much more than merely a king and a warrior and a nation. Do, do you see how these examples cover the entirety of society? What, what the psalmist is teaching us is we are all prone to place our hope in things that appear strong. A king hopes in his army. A warrior hopes in his strength. A nation hopes in their war horses. But while these things appear strong, ultimately, they will all fail. An army will be defeated. The warrior will grow old and his strength will wane. Nations rise and nations fall. What, what the psalmist wants us to realize is we will hope in something. But if that hope is not in the sovereign Lord who created all things, who works all things according to his purposes, and who judges righteously, that hope is in vain. Yet, our psalmist does not leave us without hope this morning. Praise God. Look with me to verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. If, if our psalmist merely wrote, praise the Lord for we have a sure hope in him, that statement certainly would be true, yet it would lose its weight. No, he first calls us to consider the glories of creation and the fact that God spoke everything into existence and marvel that God has not left us to ourselves but is presently at work orchestrating all things to his purposes. Then rest in the truth that there is true justice. God sees all the acts of men. None will escape his righteous eye. This is the Lord that we serve, church. This is the Lord our psalmist calls us to place our hope in. Which... Brings us to our final point this morning. We hope in God. And it's important here to make a distinction between different kinds of hope. Uh, a worldly hope versus a biblical hope. Worldly hope is wishful longing with no assurance. Whereas biblical hope is, is not a wish, nor is it based on what you do or what you have done what possessions you own, your social status. Biblical hope is confident waiting that God will fulfill his promises. Repeat that for us. Biblical hope is confident waiting that God will fulfill his promises. And, and with that, see the structure of this psalm once more. We, we have the command to praise in verses 1 through 3. The reasons to praise in verses 4 through 19. And then in verses 20 through 22, we read what our response should be to these reasons. Let us read these verses. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So, what should be our response as Christians to these great truths? Confident, Rest in the Lord, knowing our hope in him is sure. See the words used in verse 21. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Showing that if you are a Christian, this confidence, this hope we have in the Lord, is to affect the very core of your being. And 
pay attention to the methods our psalmist has used to get us to this point. He's looked back at God's work in the past to provide present assurance that God will act. And notice something that we've skipped over. Look back with me to verse 18 and see what our psalmist calls us to place our hope in. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Church, now's our time to apply the same method our psalmist has used. That is, looking back at what God has done in the past to provide present assurance that he will fulfill his promises. Brothers and sisters, what is the greatest expression of God's steadfast love towards us? Listen to these words from 1 John. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. How do we as Christians have confident hope today? The cross of Jesus. Think about this, church. Not not only are we today as believers able to read, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and have confidence that the same God who spoke all things into existence will orchestrate all things according to his purposes, but also know the same powerful word who brought all things into existence also humbled himself, took on humanity, walked among us living the life that we should have lived, and died the death that we should have died, so that we can now read verses 18 and 19 with new eyes. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death. For because of the final and finished work of Jesus, we know there is coming a day when this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know sin and death will be defeated? Because the tomb was empty on the third day. How great is our hope in the risen Christ, church? This this should naturally bring us back to verses 1 through 3 and cause us to shout for joy in the Lord. Christian, praise the Lord for our hope in Him is sure. But if you are not a Christian, this, this hope does not belong to you. This, this present life, with all of its struggles, challenges, pains, and heartbreaks, is the best you will ever experience. But praise be to God that he's made a way for you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I, I ask you this morning, confess Jesus as Lord. Believe that he was raised from the dead and you too can have this same hope. And to all of us, I ask us again, where is your hope? The 2024 presidential election is right around the corner. Do do you see in your heart the tendency to hope in an earthly ruler over the risen Christ? Or do you find yourself hoping in your athleticism, your intellect, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, 
the amount of followers that you have, your bank account, your retirement. You, you see, the psalmist has application for both Christian and non-Christian alike this morning. And that is, if you hope in anything or in anyone other than the sovereign Lord who created all things, who works all things according to his will, and who judges righteously, your hope is in vain. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, that there exists a hope that is open and available to all who believe, who place their faith in Jesus. And covenant life, let us put the psalm into practice as we prepare to transition into a time of praise by singing to our great God. And and may we join the psalmist and say, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in our risen Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we confess that all too often we have placed our hope in things and in people other than you. Forgive us and and teach our hearts through the work of your Spirit to marvel not only at the glories of creation, but also at the final and finished work of Jesus. We we praise the name of Jesus this morning. And, and may we, as, as Covenant Life Fellowship, your church, learn to place our hope firmly and solely in you. May the name of Jesus be praised in Douglas County. And we ask, may Jesus be glorified in our lives. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.